Everton in the Community is renowned as one of the UK's top sporting charities and has been a leading Premier League community scheme since 1988. It doesn't just change lives, it saves lives with a proven track record of tackling Liverpool's deepest-rooted social changes, which is admired across the landscape of community sports development. Today we'll be breaking down the Learns Pillar, and I'm delighted to have with me the charity's Director of Lifelong Learning, Mike Finn. Only around a quarter of young people in L4 reach some stage of higher education before the age of 19. That's more than 10% below the UK national average. Meanwhile, a huge 31% of the working age population in part of Liverpool have no formal qualifications at all. These figures speak for themselves and over the next five years, Everton in the community's Learns Pillar will aim to address the change needed to tackle social and educational inequalities present in our region. Mike, tell us a little bit more about how Learns will support the charity because those statistics are shocking. Yeah, and I think it's it's important to note that obviously there's great work being done by partners in the city council and obviously in the education services to really transform opportunities over the longer period. But there are parts of our city that clearly struggle um, and that are struggling, facing particular challenges. And you've highlighted some of them there, Darren. And, you know, there are areas where some of our young people, some of our children um, going right through to adulthood are not really getting the opportunities in education that we'd hope that they get. Um, and that's not because of any one factor. That's why the overarching approach of the, the strategy for the charity is so important because it's not just about education. Mm. It's about mental health. It's about support um, with the family environment. It's about all sorts of different elements to make that work. But I think from the point of view of what we're trying to do on the learn side, on the learns pillar, it's about being very specific about how we, can, how we can affect these things across the life course because these inequalities start early, Darren, yeah. and then they persist. So it's really about how we can best leverage the power of the badge, the credibility of Evan in the community and the reach that the charity has to intervene at the earliest stages. And, and that really does start at the beginnings of the life course with the early years provision. Only a quarter of young people, Mike and L4, reach some stage of higher education before the age of 19. That's 13% below the UK national average for L4. I'm sure that, that there's plenty of mitigation behind that damning statistic, but it, is, there a, is there an answer to the question, why is that? I think you've answered it in your question in a way, Darren. It's lots of different factors. It's lots of different factors. Um, it's an issue of deprivation, if we're honest. It's an issue of the impact of unequal wealth distribution. It's an impact of um, the challenges that they face socially as well. It's an impact of things that happen before, actually way before we get to the point when people are thinking about applying to university or going to further education. It's way back, you know, it goes back to the early years. If we go back to the early years, if we look at parts of L4, if we look at parts of our city generally, there are participation neighbourhoods in parts of our city where the early learning goals are way off. And we're talking about age five, there's 10% behind, there's more than that in some places in some wards of the city. And what that means in practice is that essentially you've got people at the very start of their life course, very start of their learning journey, where then they've not got the ability to make the most of school. And so once they go into school, they find that they're very challenged in that space. Maybe they have undiagnosed SEND needs as well, special educational needs. Um, and then they progress through the school. And the teachers do an incredible job. They work so hard and so diligently to support all these children, but they need support too. And that progresses through into secondary education. Then it goes to higher education. I think with higher education, just as you've, you've um, spotted there, Darren, I think one of the things about higher education is it's such a it's a transition from childhood to adulthood as well, isn't it? Mm. It's that point when people set fair on the ocean of life, isn't it? You know, and they go off into their own world. And 
obviously our education is not for everybody, but the issue is, is the opportunity there for yeah. everybody? That's the key question. Are people able to make a meaningful choice? So in answer to your question, it's not one thing. It is poverty. It's it is deprivation. Question to answer, isn't it really? but, but there are things we can do about that. There are things mm -hmm. we can address about that, but that's why the approach has to be, that's why we've styled it as a lifelong learning approach. The approach has to be lifelong. It can't be something where we say, well, actually, we're just going to give some careers advice or we're just going to do some stuff about how to write an application form. There has to be a much more deep-seated approach to try and remedy that. You mentioned the, the phrase five-year-olds. I mean, that, 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 that's particularly upsetting to hear, isn't it? Because I'm sure at some point quite early on their education journey, some kids just give up and think, this is not for me, this ain't going to work. Yeah, and I think the key thing there is, well, when that does happen, obviously the, the programmes that the community has been involved in have been tailored over many years and a great track record in trying to address that and trying to prevent people from giving up. But when kids do give up, it's trying to understand and not patronise and not condescend when they're coming up against things that they find it difficult to comprehend the scale of what is reigned against them, really. How, you know, how can we help them navigate that? How can we not condescend to them? How can we work with them? to realise their ambitions and their achievements. And again, going back to that point in the early years, you know, when people do get switched off school quite early, because these attainment gaps, they grow, they shrink, they vary, but they are consistent in the areas and some of the areas that we operate in over the course of the life course. So it is disheartening. And I think it's mm. no more disheartened for anyone than for the parents. You know, I think the parents find that the most disheartening thing. And I think one thing I want to do is give a shout out to the parents because the parents fight so hard for their children, but they need help. And that's really where we're positioning ourselves. We're trying to be there to support educational outcomes, both for the, the kids themselves, but also for parents, for example, who may lack the confidence to support their children because their own educational journeys weren't what they would have hoped. They were denied the opportunities that maybe they needed. We're also trying to get into that space and support there as well. So it becomes a kind of circle of improvement, if you like. Is there an age limit on what we're trying to do? This learns pillar, can that reach out to children as young as five or is there a certain age group that we're, that we're directing our efforts at? Well, we're trying to work across the charity to go all the way down, you know, which I mean, you know, my, my colleagues over in the health and wellbeing side, um, they already work with learners that are younger than that. And we're trying to expand our provision right down to the point straight after birth, you know, um, and in some cases, you know, looking at parents in terms of working with them on the period before um, as well. And it goes right up to the upper end as well in terms of, well, we're talking very specifically at the moment about affecting life chances for younger people so that they're able to progress in life. Mm. But also remembering the fact that, for example, we have many people that have had challenges that need a second chance. Maybe they need a second chance when they're 40. Maybe they need a second chance when they're 50. Maybe they need a second chance when they're 60. You know, there is no upper limit either. And it's not, and you know, some of that is about the workplace. Some of that is about people find their industries have changed. They need new skills to be able to work in new industries. They find themselves with job insecurity because of the rapidity of change. And we need to help with that. But also some of it is, again, coming back to the broader piece that my colleagues are working on the other pillars, thinking about mental health and well-being. And, you know, for example, older people suffering from social isolation who want to explore learning as a way of keeping their minds active, as a way of interacting with other people, maybe even as a way of uncovering their own histories their own personal stories. And that's where we really want to position ourselves and we are positioning ourselves to support lifelong learning in a genuine sense, not just about the workplace, but actually about the whole aspects of life, helping people to live happy, fulfilled lives at all stages. It, it's great that you say there's no upper age limit, but I would imagine that it's it gets particularly challenging at a certain point in somebody's life for you to go out there and say, listen, it, it's, it's not over for you. The learning process is not over for you. It's never too late we can help you come in. Let's have a conversation. And, and you know, f fellas, women, 
age over 30, 40, 50, 60, you said, it must be it must be difficult to try and change their mindset and, and, and try and persuade them to appreciate that there's still opportunities there. It's never too late. Yeah, I think it's about how you frame learning, Darren. I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of people who haven't got on with learning maybe in school, mm. um, they have a particular view of learning. But at the same time, people are smart. You know, people are wise. They understand that, that there's things they don't know that they need support with. I'll take one example. We've recently, um, one of my staff has recently launched an initiative around essential digital skills. We have a digital skills lab on our campus um, in Everton in the community in the heart of Walton and Spello Lane. And what they're doing there is they're encouraging learners of all ages, but particularly of older ages, to actually get the digital skills they need to be able to survive in today's society because it's so necessary. I mean, just as an anecdote, my phone broke over the weekend. I couldn't do my banking. I couldn't <laughs> access my email. Um, you know, those are things that we have to deal with in today's society. Um, but when you're looking at older learners, potentially that means they can't access job postings, they yeah. can't apply for work, and they're not able to access benefits potentially. They're not necessarily always able to access their healthcare because they can't access the e-consults and the things they need to do on the websites for their doctor's surgeries. So older learners know they need these skills and actually they want them. But I think one of the virtues of what we do is we're in the community, we have that reach, but also because we are Everton, we also have a brand that's different and it doesn't conjure up those memories maybe of when you were in formal education all those years ago. So we have a unique opportunity that others don't have, I think. You mentioned the digital skills, you've also touched on mental health appreciation as well. Is this where, and we don't want to apportion any blame in any way, shape or form or rattle any cages, is this where maybe the the, the, the general, the traditional national curriculum in schools is is, is a little bit too rigid? Yeah, I've got to be diplomatic there, but I think, <clears throat> I think yeah, it's probably fair to say that it is rigid. And I think teachers would be the first to say that. I think, you know, I'm an ex-teacher myself. You know, I think educators in general like to have the freedom to teach and educate in the way that they think is best for the learners that they're working with. And the national curriculum can be incredibly supportive in then provide you with those schemes of work and provide you with those key stages that enable you to focus on particular things that learners need to know. But at the same time, also, there are points where you need to pivot a little bit and you need to be able to support. And clearly teachers do that and they work admirably within the confines of the system to be able to do that. But what we get the opportunities to do is we're not bound by that. You know, we support teachers and educators within mainstream education to deliver the national curriculum and it's paramount that we do. My primary and secondary teams, they do that very specifically, very directly and in ways that make a difference to Ofsted grades, that make a difference to attainment and literacy that, are, that matter. But at the same time, we have the flexibility because of who we are to deliver things that are more bespoke, that are more tailored, that can educate in much broader ways. And if you, if you in education speak, we can do the informal education, the education that happens out of hours, that happens in different spaces. And we can use football as a vehicle for that as well, which connects with learners, particularly younger learners, in a way that, you know, is, is profound in this city. And I've been so impressed by it since I came to work for the charity. So yeah, I think um, the national curriculum has its limitations. Sure, it has its strengths too. But the virtue of what we do is we're not bound by any curriculum other than the one that we make for ourselves. Do you get any resistance from the educational authorities when you say, look, we're going we're gonna to help these kids? The, the educational authorities say, we're managing. 
We don't need you. Well, I think I think no. I I don't think we do. I think what we get is it, we're all good neighbours, and I think I think the issue is the the education authorities. Firstly, all credit to them. You know, I think I think the we're blessed in Liverpool that we have both the city council working through the the age ranges in schools, also in adult learning. We have the combined authority that's also got a focus, particularly on skills development at all. Uh, you know, at adult ages and in further education and beyond. And um, we're blessed actually with the support and the intelligence and the expertise, the teams that we get the privilege of working with, and the teachers, the front rank teachers themselves, you know, the, the, what they actually do and what they commit to and how they work. And one of the things that I've been so impressed by, I left teaching a little while ago, one of the things I've been so impressed by with teachers now is their commitment to upskill and how much they work to develop. So no, I don't think we get resistance. I think actually what we get is, a, is an enthusiasm about what's niche and what's different about what we do, because they know that we can go to places that others can't, you know, in terms of the badge gives power. The, the yeah. credibility of Everton Football Club, that Everton in the community is able to leverage, the reach that has. And also at the end of the day, you know this, Darren, I know this, football's a religion in this city. And I think teachers, educators, they themselves are part of that. And even when we're dealing with Reds, who may not like Everton and all the rest of it, um, there's a mutual respect, you know, as well. And I think, you know, when our colleagues over the, over the park and all the rest of it, when they're doing what they do, you know, w w for ourselves, now we don't meet resistance. I think what we, what we meet is an enthusiasm for the unique things we do. And also the track record of what the charity has done over the long, long period that it's been operating now. You know, we've seen the life change and transformations that it's able to support, but it's about working in partnership. I've noticed the, the phrase lifelong learning when I've been looking into this particular pillar, Mike. Just briefly explain what lifelong learning is. So in education speak, so in the sector, lifelong learning often refers to further education and adult education. So often lifelong learning is used to talk about education through the rest of life, if you like. Post-school. Post-school, post-compulsory education. Um, we're thinking about it very differently. We're thinking about lifelong learning as authentically lifelong. We're thinking about it from cradle to retirement. You know, we're, we're thinking about it as how do we think about not just across the life course as a time period, we're thinking about how do we think about people in terms of the whole of their lives, you know, everything they want to do in their lives. So when we're thinking about the lens pillar, we're thinking about, yeah, skills for workplaces. We're thinking about literacy in schools, thinking about numeracy, things we've invested heavily in and we've supported a lot. But we're also thinking about education for self-expression. How can we help people express themselves? How, for example, can we introduce um, young people, young learners in a part of the city where there's no, for example, drama provision or arts or something like that in a city which is incredibly culturally rich how can we support that and equally how can we support that for somebody who's 65 potentially wants to tread the board at that age or wants to learn about how to work a computer so what we're thinking about lifelong is we don't we're not viewing life just as a series of way stations or points we're also thinking about life for the whole of a person at all points in that stage and we're trying to reach all parts of that as well hmm. It's a fascinating insight into a really exciting pillar of the whole project, into what Learns will bring to Liverpool. But let's hear now from a participant who was already reaping the rewards of Everton in the community's delivery. Hi, my name's Evie. I go to the Academy of St. Nicholas and I am a part of the Premier League Inspires and I have been for a year. The school referred me to it. This club we did was quality, diversity and inclusion and we did a lot of stuff based on like stereotypes and how you should treat people. Personally it's developed me to be a lot more confident and I we met loads of new people there and I learned to like really be able to communicate with the new people but also they've given me so many opportunities 
like filming for example which is what I want to do when I'm older I want to be an actress Christina checks in with me um they've helped me with the my future job and stuff like helped me come into that comfort zone of it people didn't know that my disability existed before they saw the video if you get what I mean like they could have just been like it didn't exist but because they've saw me they do and they've helped me like speak out if you speak like be able to get my voice across yeah Everton's helped inspired me to go straight forward with what I want because I can do it They've helped me really believe in myself and what I can do in the future by giving me the opportunities that they have. And I really believe I can do the things that I I, I want to do because of Everton. Thank you very much for everything that you've done for me. Like it means the world to me, it's everything. Like the award that you put me up for and that I won. Honestly, I don't think I'd be where I am if I didn't have Everton. The really just a place that you can go to and everyone like everyone there is lovely and you can always speak to them about anything and they'd be there for you they're just yeah amazing all these case studies are, are truly inspirational mike and and the inspires program was mentioned there tell us a little bit more about the inspires program so the Inspires programme is a Premier League funded programme that operates within secondary schools right. and it operates in a number of different ways, but it works with cohorts to support them, really with looking at different opportunities that are available to them, about encouraging them to remain committed to academic education within the curriculum, about supporting them, about particular tailored interventions that look at literacy and numeracy and so on, but also open them up to pathways and a range of career opportunities that maybe they hadn't thought about. So Inspires is exactly what it says on the tin. It is yeah. about inspiring younger people to really attain different things and opening their minds to things that maybe they hadn't considered. Because one of the things our young people, I think particularly in Liverpool as well, because of the creative genius of Liverpool people, is they are they are very aspirational, actually. They want to be things. They want to yeah. achieve things. It's not that. That's not the case. But where they can be inspired is in terms of what directions that may take, what form that may take. So, for example, on our Inspires programme, there's a range of initiatives that are done to showcase different professions. There's opportunities, for example, to understand how the police work, look at the judicial system, how that works from the inside, work with legal partners to look at the, the legal um, profession, look at solicitors and so on. And we work with a range of partners to deliver that. We've had students, we've had participants go into Liverpool Crown Court um, and take part in court cases as interns. They've looked at that from the inside. We've had them do trainee detective courses with the police, where they've actually been able to see how the police progress a case. Um, and some of that's fascinating. I've sat in on some of that. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. They hire actors to act as the suspects and so on. And seeing the young people really have to develop a new range of skills in order to be able to process the kind of information that the police deal with and understand how these investigations have progressed, it both opens up new career opportunities to them, but it also helps them understand why they do the things they do in school. Because I think that's one of the challenges with mainstream education sometimes is how is it tangible to a young person? Yeah. Why am I doing this in class? Where will it take me? People always talk about physics, don't they? When they uh, when this topic of conversation comes up, and and they always say that the only people who want to learn about physics are the ones who want to teach physics to the next generation, and the only reason they want to learn about and so on and so forth. And I remember when I was um, younger, I think one of the well, I was a young educator, and there was a university came to a place that I was I was teaching, and they did a demonstration using a wind tunnel to show how a football moves aerodynamically through the air, and that hit me as an educator. And I think when younger people can have it explained to them in terms that are relevant to them, yeah. that's where it makes a 
big difference. And I think that's what PL Inspires does so well, is it shows how mainstream education links into these professions and the kinds of um, challenges you might face getting there, but also the opportunities there are and opening people's minds to that. And it does a lot more besides, obviously there's bespoke and targeted interventions that our Inspires team has done to boost reading ages and literacy coming out of COVID in particular schools that have had a massive impact that have improved reading ages by a number of months after the kind of fallback that we saw during the COVID period. So it's a hugely diverse programme of activity, which has enormous reach through different areas of the city. Um, it's PL funded and it's it's an inspirational success, I have to say that. It's fabulous. Isn't it? <laughs> it's about releasing potential, isn't it? Tell us about the Digital Skills Lab. What is it and where is it? So the Digital Skills Lab is a facility that's in our um, People's Hub on Spellow Lane. So it's the heart of the ITC campus and it was funded through philanthropy. Um, it's just coming up on its first anniversary and it's an incredible facility right at the heart of L4 where you have a whole range of digital technologies that you wouldn't see in the normal walk of life. You know, mm. there's laser cutting there so they can make things, laser printing and they can fabricate different things, create things. There's robots where they can educate younger learners on all sorts of different things through programming these robots to do different activities. Um, there's a VR pod where they can experiment with virtual reality um, and it's there's, there's a whole suite suites of digital Lego, which is beyond me, Darren, because back in my day, it was all Duplo and Blocks. But um, but now Lego does a lot more than that. And and you see younger learners, they work with learners of all ages. I mentioned already the Essential Digital Skills works with older learners. And sometimes that's as simple as getting iPads out or getting laptops out and talking people through how to set up an email address. Mm. But the other end of digital skills, for example, in partnership with our Inspires program, they supported the fabrication of items for a community garden or a, a, a community garden space that was created in one of the schools um, and they're physically able to make that material and the kids can learn techniques around laser printing and coding which then obviously are huge skills development pieces for when they want to go into different industries and we're experimenting where it's a year into its life we're still experimenting with uses for it but for example with the VR pod we're looking at things where we can develop a VR offer virtual reality offer where younger people can look at the choices that are made in violent offending and so on through virtual reality and why I should go this way and not that way. So the limits on what we can do within that skills lab are basically untapped. The, 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 there is no, there's, the sky is the limit, no pun intended. So it's both a concrete facility in itself, but it's also a base from which my teams, my East team team, who go out and deliver digital and um, skills in the community, they can go into schools with drones and teach kids about photography even, um, or, or video work, um, or even just how to handle a drone, um, how to handle a drone responsibly, of course, because a lot of what we do with digital technologies needs to be responsible. Mm -hmm. So it's a really, it's a real fulcrum for a lot of the activity we do. It delivers across different programs, across the age range, it supports our primary endeavors, supports our secondary endeavors, but also works with older learners in the community. So it's somewhere we go out from and it's somewhere where we can bring the community to. How do people get involved in that, Mike? Because it, it, it would be fabulous for, for older people who look after their grandkids or their nieces and their nephews and the grandkids get iPads out and yep. tablets out and what have you. Somebody says, I'd love to learn to be able to use an iPad of my own, use a tablet of my own and interact with my granddaughter with my grandson. How do they get involved? What's the starting point? So exactly with the essential digital skills, we've got a number of pathways into that. One is actually people can just refer themselves onto it. They can actually right. just come in over the transom, but obviously we want to broadcast that as much as possible. Yeah. But the other thing we've done is we've opened it up to our Blue Pantry users as well. We've opened it up to a range of different users of our other programs to, you know, okay, I've got a need and come into it. Some of the 
participants to work with my employability team. They have come in through that route as well, because for example, they're having difficulty doing job searches. So there's a real slew of different ways that we do it. And we're opening up that digital skills offer to all the programs that we have. Well, it is a special place, the Digital Skills Lab, and there were some special visitors there recently. Everton's Jared Branthwaite, James Garner and Jao Virginia experienced the facility for the very first time. Goalkeeper Jao Virginia speaks to us next on how he found the session at the Digital Skills Lab. So, Jao, you've had your first taste of the Digital Skills Lab today. Just give us an idea of the type of activities that you got up to. Yeah, we had three different stations one was building a car out of Lego, so we were giving the car instructions with via our iPads, also programming the car, when to turn, when to when to stop. We were saying it was doing the car to go to Goodison Park. The other one was like a little robot ball. It was like in in a like a small sized football pitch. We wanted to take a corner with it or score a goal. So we had to give you the instructions where the ball needed to turn. And the other one was we, we had a, a little car, which it, it identified the colors, when to turn, when to slow down, when to... So yeah, it's quite fun. It's quite fun. It was uh, interesting to see see the young kids learning about how to program. And it's, it's really, really interesting with different kinds of Legos, robots, and to make it how, how do they work like they're, they're doing maths and not thinking about it so it's it's quite good to in to put kids in that path into joining maybe science or engineering in the future so yeah i never had this kind of opportunities when i was young so i didn't i always thought it was it would be boring but today i found it really interesting yeah and it's all about supporting children and young people reach their full potential using like different fun examples would you say that the kids left it, or maybe even yourself, left the left the room inspired today? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, I'll probably want to try that again. <laughs> those kind of those kind of things. So yeah, for sure, inspired. How did the children react to some of the games? Oh, they were pretty enthusiastic, really. They they were quite into it. So so yeah, they were having a blast. I think uh, it has been a fascinating insight, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. Crucially, did you fix your phone? <laughs> yeah, I made a, I made a desperate run to a retailer. All the retailers are available this morning to sort that out, Darren. But we got there in the end. Nothing worse than breaking your phone on a Sunday, is there? It's it's a crisis situation. But I was a good listener for part of it, so that was probably quite helpful. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for listening. Next week we'll be getting to grips with the Thrives Pillar as part of Everton in the Community's new strategy. As always, if you'd like to find out more about Everton in this community or to donate head to www.evertoninthecommunity.org. www.evertoninthecommunity.org. Thanks very much indeed, Mike, and Georgie Company. Thanks for listening. Pleasure to be with you, Dan. Join us next week.